Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. Do you have plans August 25th and 26th? Add Leading Reliability Conference to your calendar. Join Iridicio, RDI Technologies, Fluke Reliability, and UE Systems for a live and in-person conference in Clearwater, Florida. Hear from the top industry leaders on industry hot topics. Each company will also be hosting pre- and post-event workshops. Don't miss out on the event of the year. To learn more about the Leading Reliability Conference and to register for the event, visit www.leadingreliability.com or check them out on LinkedIn. It's my pleasure to welcome Ryan Sitton to the podcast. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you, James. So, Ryan, for those that may not be familiar with you, you are founder and CEO of Pinnacle. Prior to that, you have spent a tremendous amount of time working with mechanical integrity, reliability engineering, production engineering, and a wide range of other things within industry. You're also an author of the book, Crucial Decisions, which we're going to talk about today and how that applies to all the different things that we're doing in a maintenance and reliability standpoint. Although super brief, what can you tell us about yourself? You know, I'll, I'll give more of an anecdotal thing that's interesting. I started my career as a mechanical engineer working for an oil and gas company, Oxy. Spent time at a couple different companies and then started started Pinnacle. Um, and then actually took a, a little bit of a hiatus. I served as the energy regulator for the state of Texas for the last six years, just finishing up my term in 2020. And what, what happened to all of us during that time, industry regulation, everything was this evolution of data. And it's, that's not new to anybody. Um, but in my case, you know, I went from being a mechanical engineer now to getting my PhD in data science. And that would have probably seemed alien to a lot of people a while back, but now that's become almost a necessity in this maintenance reliability world. And I just say that because I think that frames up a lot of the discussion we're going to have is that these days my focus is on how do we use data to accomplish what we've always wanted to. All right. Perfect. Now, you know, going through how do we use this data? How do we make good decisions? Because let's face it, that's the whole reason why we're trying to collect data is to make better decisions. Um, now, with that being said, what is a crucial decision and what makes it crucial versus just a regular decision that we may be seeing within the facility that we're trying to improve? Sure. And, you know, James, to give this some context, I'll, I'll talk bigger than just, you know, reliability and, and maintenance today. You know, crucial decisions are those decisions that have a lasting impact. Now, that may Seems still like a soft answer, but when you think about it, there's not that many decisions that we make every day, whether you're talking about maintenance, reliability in big facilities or our lives. You know, in our lives, you may think a crucial decision is something like where I go to college and what am I getting my degree in, who I'm going to marry, whether or not I'm going to have kids, uh, where I get a job or where I choose to live. These things have pretty long lasting impacts on our lives as opposed to, you know, do I go to work today or do I take the day off or where do I take my vacation this year? may feel like big decisions in the moment, but they, they don't have lasting impacts. We'll bring that back to the area of reliability. And boy, the, the big freeze and the Texas power outages this year really showed us some glimpses into things that we might not have thought were crucial decisions 
a month prior, but by the time the freeze was happening, we realized exactly how big those decisions were. So in, in the context, I'll bring it very back very specifically to the day-to-day reliability world. You know, a big part of, of building reliability into our systems is understanding which decisions people, experts, computers are making every day that really do have lasting impacts. Because often we think, we, we kind of prioritize or we wait the decisions we make based on subjective opinion, as opposed to really understanding the magnitude of what those decisions mean. Yeah, I really like the example of the Texas freeze. Now, there are some crucial decisions made leading up to that event. Um, and that's a good example of some recent issues that we can trace back to these types of decisions. Now, what type of crucial decisions may have resulted in all those issues we saw? Well, some of that decision, some, some of those decisions were some that were made, I'm not exaggerating, 40 years prior. For example, if you were to go back and say uh, ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, you were to say that they, they were making decisions for 50 years to ensure the reliability of electrical supply, supply of electricity to Texas citizens. And their strategy for most of those years was reliability by redundancy. So let's make sure there is sufficient capacity i.e. if one facility goes down, I've got backup facilities also running or, or available to run. And that they would then you know, go through market maneuvers, price setting. They would, they would do predictions of power draws and all that kind of stuff to help make that work. And all that works fine until or as long as you don't have one of two things happen. One, if any one part of your system can affect the other parts of your system, then redundancy doesn't necessarily equal reliability. Or if you have an event that can affect large pieces of your system, then your redundancy may not drive reliability. And in this freeze, we saw both of those. We saw the impacts of some pieces of the system affecting other pieces. And we saw that the freeze itself shut down lots of facilities all at the same time. So my point is the crucial decision to let's, let's, let's not think about the reliability of the plants themselves. We'll leave that to private industry. Instead, let's make sure we have enough redundancy. That crucial decision played out over decades. All right. Now, obviously, while those decisions were being made, risk was a factor, right? So you mentioned they were looking at redundancy to minimize some of those risks, that sort of thing. But they didn't address all risks then. So how does risk fit into decision making? And do we typically over or underestimate that risk? <laughs> yeah, James, that is that is probably that question right there. Do we typically over or or underestimate risk is probably a the the fundamental question that a lot of our society is asking itself today. When you look at, for example, the the banking crises of 2008, 9, and 10, and the housing crisis then, do we look, when we look at how we reacted to coronavirus and shutting down you know, parts of our economy to the tune of trillions of dollars, when we look at the Texas power grid failures, when we look at how we spend money running oil and gas operations every day and trying to protect against you know, environmental and safety issues, there, there is there is tremendous amount of effort and money spent in the prevention of events that uh, once again people would say, well, did we did we over or underestimate risk? Back to it, risk is probably the the number one analytical ingredient we have when we make a decision of any kind, right? Once again, I'll go back to something at home. If I if I'm going to think about, well, where's where am I going to go to college? You don't think about that in terms of risk. But there is still the same basic formula, which is what is the probability of certain outcomes? 
and the prop and the consequence of those outcomes? And do they match what objectives I look for when I think of my career and my life livelihood after college? And and as long as saying we tend to not only over or underestimate risk based on lack of understanding of numbers, we tend to over or underestimate risk by not understanding what we don't know and therefore leaning into the opinions or the subjective analysis of the local quote unquote expert. And I will tell you that if you look at coronavirus is, is, is probably the most recent one in which I think we're going to, we will end up judging ourselves as overestimating risk for most people. What, what our experts did as a, as a nation, I'm picking on the United States here, is that we sized up the risk to certain pieces of our population who were, who were at risk. They, they were, if they were exposed to coronavirus, their risk of serious uh, consequences or fatality was very high. But for a huge portion of our society, the risks were very low, much lower than, say, risk of dying of an accident. However, what was the, react, what was the decision? The decision was to shut down the entire country. And therefore, we saw some of the big challenges. It's hard to shut down an entire nation for an extended period of time. It's hard to, 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 to deal with trillions of dollars of economic loss and job losses and those sort of things. And so what I will say is, as, as we look back in history and, and we go now into a refinery or a chemical plant and, and try to calculate risk to make these crucial decisions, what is really important is to understand what do we know and what do we not know in that risk assessment. And if we do that well, then the data can help us keep from over or underestimating risk based on the subjectivity that experts can introduce. All right. So I just want to make sure I get this right. So there are times where we as an organization, a society, a company overestimate that risk. And there's other times we underestimate based on past experience, missing data points, that type of thing. Absolutely. And I will add one one anecdote to that. I would say these days in big industry, you know, when you're talking refining chemical plants, mining operations, uh, water treatment facilities, we tend to overestimate risk on a subjective basis. And that, that happens because if you're a reliability professional, your job is for things not to break. So if you, if you overestimate a little bit, spend a little bit too much, that's not a particular penalty on, on your performance. However, if something breaks on your watch, then yeah, you definitely have screwed up. So those of us in the reliability profession subjectively tend to overestimate risk. And, and our data bears that out. When we compare quantitative risk analyses that people have done to actual facility performance, we see that there's a fairly, you know, there, there's an order of magnitude overestimation of risk that goes into decision making. All right. Now, I guess to kind of mitigate some of that overestimating of risk to help make better decisions, we need some data. Now, does data limit our ability to make good decisions or can we rely on experience and subjectivity or how does that all fit together? Well, if you were to, th this is sort of the changing of the guard, I think that's going on in industry today is that you, you have some people who have this philosophy, like I'm not going to let some machine tell me what to do. And, um, and so they'll, they'll, they will feel like they can get hamstrung by, by data analytics and the limitations of that. On the flip side, you have other people that recognize, man, we're making subjective decisions in our facility every day. And, and either we overestimate our risk, back to our last question, and we really spend a lot more money and, to, and, and invest a lot more effort than we should, or we underestimate and we, we introduce risk we shouldn't be introducing. And when they see that, they say, we need, we need to quantify this. We need to, we need to remove some of the subjectivity. 
And so back, back to your, your question, how do we do this? It, it starts with a real understanding. Of what's my objective? Is my objective to have no failures? Usually that's not the objective inside a large facility. Usually the objective is I want to make sure that the, whatever failures I have are controlled and that those failures don't, rel- don't result in large economic losses or safety impacts to personnel or, um, or you know, environmental incidents. So really what my objective is, is to optimize the performance of my facility to maximize my productivity through my reliability at the same time to ensure that the, the money I do spend is well spent on those initiatives. And so if I, if I have a good focus, if I know what my objective is, then I can get into some fairly quantitative analysis. But what the experts or the subjective, how subjective analysis can couple very nicely with that data analytics is to identify what areas we have good data, what areas we have knowns, but then also it can identify where do we have unknowns. And that's the power of of the expert looking at a situation, subjectively assessing what, and, and, and even quantifying to some degree what we don't know. All right. So, you know, we want to use data. That data is going to give us greater insight to what we should do, that sort of thing. But we use experts to validate, is this data correct? Is it complete? Is it giving us that full picture? And if not, what can we do to get that data in those missing areas? Well, that, that is probably where we are advancing the most today. So if you were to go 10 years ago, what tended to happen in a decision process was, and I'll pick on myself because I was, you know, I've been an expert in mechanical integrity, reliability for 25 years. What someone would do is say, Ryan, come in and help us figure out if we can you know, push this turnaround or if we can remove these practices or if we can extend certain practices or do, how do we, you know, what else do we need to do this equipment? And we would, get, we would pull together all the information we had into a room of, of people who had knowledge. We would look at all that together and then we'd make an opinion. We, we would form an opinion based on consensus and based on the analysis that we have. How we are shifting that a little bit is to say, let's instead start with what, by identifying what criteria are we going to use to make our decision? In other words, at what profit point or what return on investment or at what risk level are we going to make the decision to do A? versus B. And now our job becomes to iterate on the analysis, given a certain amount of data we have and a certain amount of unknowns that we don't have. How can we iterate on the analysis to to try to tighten up to to that point, to the point that we have an answer to the question about at what point do we, you know, do we go to A or B? If we look at a situation, man, there are so many unknowns and we're making a lot of assumptions and we 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 can't do the analysis we want to do, well let's keep rather than injecting the judgment call, how can we go reduce uncertainty? What activities can we can we take? What actions can we take to reduce uncertainty? Or what analyses can we add in that we weren't doing before? And we have we didn't used to do things that way 10 years ago. Now we are. So we're we're instead of following the flow of the human decision, we're following the flow of the data. And and this is a, as I said, this is a new this is a new process for most of big industry, but the areas where it's being applied, we're seeing not only better better results, more repeatable results, but we're also seeing a more efficient process once people get good at it. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out iridicio.com for a free copy of their ebook, A Smarter Way of Preventative Maintenance. This ebook will allow you to review your current maintenance program and eliminate the non-value-added work you're doing, which is most likely causing you more downtime than it is preventing. www.iridicio.com so 
how do we overcome that challenge then when we're making that transition? Is it really a data collection plan up front that's being thought out by experts? How do we close that gap? Yeah, in fact, I talk about this in the book. I, toward the, one of the latter chapters, I actually walk through a, a traditional decision process and a data a data flow decision process. And and in the decision in the, in, the, in in shifting from the first one to the second one, the what's required for us is to is to is to well, as I said, let's identify what's our objective and what's our criteria for making a decision on how we're going to act on that objective. And then there's a series of steps that you would go through to figure out what your knowns are, what your unknowns are, how you gather data. So it's a it's really it's not a very complex process to make the shift. It's more the mindset. And especially with those of us who've been doing this 25 years, we can be resistant to change. We've, we've had some success doing it the old way. And so it, it's laying out here's here's the way we're going to do this. And here's the process to implement this new way and getting everybody to say, yeah, let's use that. Once once you've got that that process flowing, then it starts to flow pretty seamlessly. All right. So then how do we shift from that subjective to quantitative decision making, you know, going from that old way to new way? Is it creating decision making frameworks? Is it, you know, high level? What are the steps? Yeah, it, you actually just talk about decision making frameworks. I've, I've said this now a couple of times. But I'll say it again. If I know I'm going to make a, a decision, let's let's try to come up with an example. Uh, my daughter is 17. She's trying to evaluate where she's going to go to college right now. And she's got opportunity. She's a volleyball player. She's got opportunities to go to several different schools. And, you know, some she could get college scholarship money to play volleyball. But some she's more interested in, although she couldn't play volleyball there, she's more interested in in what they offer her to study. There's even a third camp, which is they don't they don't offer any volleyball money, but she can get into a really prestigious university like a Columbia. So if you're exam, I went to Texas A and M. If you're evaluating Texas A and M and say Columbia, and then a third school that may not be quite as high on the on the academic ranks, but she could go to for free. What what's her criteria? And, and the, the answer I give her is don't don't think about the college. Think about what you want to do afterward. When you think about, you know, I think I want to study chemical engineering and here is where I think I want to live. And here is the, the area I think I'd like to practice chemical engineering. And here is the most effective way to get into that career path. Well, now, what data do we use to assess that? Do we care, for example, about the U.S. News and World Report rankings? Do we care about the, the number of chemical engineers in school there? Do we care about um, the, the social mobility rankings of these schools. And so the, the point is, before we ever get into trying to figure out what our decision is going to be, we, we try to figure out what's our objective and then what criteria feed into that objective. If I apply that same example to a refinery, if I say, hey, I've got a unit here, what's my objective? My objective is to boost the availability of this unit by three percentage points and to drop the spend by $10 million. Well, now I have the criteria against which I'm going to gauge all of my decisions as a, as a system, as opposed to simply trying to boost the reliability of one asset. By starting off with what's my objective and what are the different points or the different criteria by which I will gauge how I'm pursuing that objective, now I start getting into a much more quantitative process of evaluating my decisions. All right. So that there is that quantitative decision-making process, all the different criteria, evaluating each, walking through that sort of approach. Yes. All right. Perfect. Now, does one need a software or something like that to facilitate this decision-making process? I'll say this. You, you don't have to have one. 
And in fact, you don't even have to have a software at all. However, to objectively consider data in a statistical way, it's very difficult to do that manually. And it's almost impossible to do that in our heads. It's a lot of psychology study on the capability of the mind to evaluate variables in parallel. Most studies will tell you that the human mind can consider at most you know, seven different things at the same time. Usually it's more like three or four or five. And if I'm saying I've got you know, 19 or, or 44 or 118 different data points that I wanna track and consider holistically, I may not need software, but at least you know, an Excel spreadsheet with criteria and statistics and, and some light algorithms that, that, that correlate all these things. And so, so yeah, you don't necessarily have to have a software, but the software tools, the modeling tools that we have today that are produced by lots of different companies, a lot of different arenas, simply make it a whole lot more efficient to, to do this, to, to, to follow this decision process. And I'm sure those software tools make it a lot more repeatable so we can evaluate, is our criteria right? Is our risk ranking criteria right? And all those other things. So we can improve that whole decision-making process as well. Yeah, great point, James. You know, a big part of the the, the process, and, and we can kind of talk for a second if you want to about, about in the detail, following the flow of the data. But in that process, there's a, there's a step by which you kind of go back to the beginning and say, what what did that, what uncertainty did that process introduce that we didn't gauge the first time around? And so to continuously improve that process, having those types of systems to, to, to iterate with and to test the validity of is crucial. All right. So regardless of, you know, what tool we're using, we got to have a PDCA loop to go back and validate the model, the process, where to improve it, that sort of thing. So we can continue to get better at making these crucial decisions. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. All right. Perfect. Now, you know, we've covered quite a bit of ground in a short period of time, but obviously there's a lot that goes behind this. Where can people find out more about, you know, the quantitative decision-making process that we've talked about? Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll take the opportunity to shamelessly plug my book. Um, and, and look, I'll tell you that crucial decisions is not the be all end all of a quantitative decision process. It what it, what it does do is it introduces the subject in the context of people who are making decisions every day in a way that's easy to, to download, easy to process. And it, as, as you know, I mean, I walk through coronavirus, I talk about baseball, I talk about a lot of different areas that we, that people have used data in different ways to make decisions so that if, if this is a new concept to people, they, they can, they can say, aha, I, I get the flow now. I get what you're, I get what you're thinking about. Um, beyond that, then there's, you know, there's myriad number of textbooks and, um, and reference materials on quantitative models, on statistics, on risk analyses. Um, one, one of the books I reference a lot in Crucial Decisions is a book called The Failure of Risk Management by a guy named Douglas Hubbard. And Doug does a great job um, going looking at the risk side of this specifically and, and referencing you know, banking industry and insurance industry and, and where there's been, um, where there's opportunities to improve in some of the analytical tools. So uh, anyway, long way of saying there's a, it, it depends on where people want to go and there is more resources than you can imagine to, to help people the more detailed they want to get into it. All right. Excellent. So I'll make sure to put links to your book, Crucial Decisions. And the failure of risk management has actually come up more than once or twice on this podcast, whether it's talking about evaluating capital 
projects, um, asset integrity programs, all these different things. So it's come up quite a few times. Now, for those that are looking to make better decisions, you know, what would you tell them? Where do they start? Is it start with the book? Is it start with a model? Um, is it start with your data set? Where do they really get started? Yeah, the the uh, this will be not probably the fourth time I said the first thing I start with is what's really what's my objective. And, and you know, James, you've been in the reliability maintenance space for a long time. And, and what tends to happen in large corporations is we get siloed. And in our silo, we say my job is to you know keep my spend level in my budget, or my job is to try to boost the mean time between failure of my rotating assets, or whatever. There's some there's some um, you know framework that we're we're we sort of end up in as a as a result of organizational uh, limitations. Backing out of that, say, what's my true objective? What's our true objective here? That's a long exercise, but that's where to start. But the, the next step is probably the most critical, which is let's understand the flow of data. If you look inside the book, I walk through this fairly simple flow chart, which has got five buckets in it. And they go from data gathering to data organization to data analysis and then to strategy. Those are the four kind of operating buckets. And then there's a recycle loop and there, there's more, there's kind of informing data gathering that then is the fifth step going back to the beginning. And in each of those buckets, there are, there are ways to think about the data. So for example, data gathering is just that. But when you get to organizing data, I talk in the book about data really, once you've got it, it goes into one of three buckets. It's either real data. So it's, it's useful. I, I know it exists. It's, it's real data. There is um, assumptions. So I may not have data, but I've got enough knowledge to, to create data that is useful to my analysis. And then there's unknowns where I, I just simply don't know. I can't put a number in here that's useful, right? So I got real data. I got assumptions. I got unknowns. That simple step, James, is most people miss that. So what they end up doing is they take their real data and their assumptions. They kind of mash them into one bucket. And then we operate in our analyses with ignoring the impact of the unknowns. So what I would say to people is, okay, I've got my criteria, I've got my first objective. Let me now go into this data flow from gathering, organizing, analyzing, strategizing. Let's just organize well and let me test to see how well our, how well our group or our organization understands our data to see if we can accurately size up the, the relative pieces of real data assumptions and unknowns. That, that will inform people a lot about their, their maturity and their ability to use the data. All right. Excellent. I like it. Those four steps there. How do we evaluate that data? How do we collect it, analyze it, group it, all those wonderful things. Um, very important when we're looking at those data sets. So I think that is a great takeaway for those looking to get more involved in making better crucial decisions. Now, in your experience with these crucial decisions, what do you think makes the biggest difference in being successful? Is it going back to that objective and truly understanding that objective? Is it the data part? Is it evaluating risk? What's the thing that makes the biggest difference? Yeah, I'll, I'll, there's a there's obviously a lot of them, and, and they all really do integrate. So one thing by itself won't do it, but I will pick. I will say one. One is really understanding that objective, especially in large organizations. I would say the second one is the groups the people, the, the organizations who have figured out how to use data and experts together as opposed to in competition. 
And once again, this is an evolving thing for us. You, if anybody who's into data and, and has seen the movie Moneyball will remember the scene where the baseball scouts are, are vehemently arguing with Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland Athletics. And he is, Billy Bean is basically saying, I'm going to take the opinion of this mid-20s data analyst over the you know, cumulative 80 years of baseball scouting expertise sitting in the room on who we're going to draft. And I mean, this, so this was data versus experts. And 15 years later, when Ben Reeder wrote the book Astro Ball, the, the Houston Astros did something different. They, they, they took that recipe and they figured out how to integrate experts and data. And that's really the, the, the big sort of big um, evolution is how do we bring those things together so that experts are filling in gaps where they are truly experts, but we're using data to quantify the areas where we have data. And you put those together, that gives the best outcomes every single time. All right. So you got to merge both the data science and the domain expertise to get a good, good result. They're not in competition, but they got to be used together. That's it. Exactly. Perfect. Now, what is the one thing you want our listeners to take away from the conversation today? Um, <laughs> I'll throw, I'll throw a plug in for you, you know, pick up the book, learn more about the decision-making process and how we do this. Uh, but what else do you want them to take away from this and go do something with? Uh, I'll put it this way. This is coming. In other words, you, how many companies, and James, I'm sure you see this everywhere. I mean, every large company in almost every industry you can think of, from healthcare to manufacturing to transportation, is talking about digital transformation, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, machine learning. I mean, it's, it's as ubiquitous these days as, as you know, the term is just best practice. And, um, and the question is not whether or not this is going to come or whether or not we're going to use data to make our decisions. The question is how and what role do those of us who have had long standing leadership roles, what role do we play in that? And so I, my, if there's one takeaway, it is we either this is either going to happen to us or we're going to we're going to be a part of leading this transformation in a way that's really effective. And you will see, I believe, in 10 years, the companies in which the people who had the domain expertise led the digital transformation expert as a, a, a digital transformation process, as opposed to those who kind of sat on the sidelines. Um, those companies where the expertise sat on the sidelines and, and you know, were, were not participating will struggle against those companies that, that we, we leaned into it because it's a, it's just a fact of the new, the new capabilities we have today in data analytics. All right. Excellent. So if we have those, Domain expertise, start learning a little bit of data science, a little bit of statistics. If you don't, see how we start merging some of this stuff together. Now, that's it. Ryan, first off, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us about crucial decisions today. But before we go, where can people find out more about you, your book, your company? Uh, I know during COVID times, there might not be a lot of events and activities going on, but if you have anything like that that's happening, um, where can they get in touch? Yeah, thanks for asking that, James. First of all, my website's easy. It's just ryansitton.com. If that if they want to connect with me personally on the things that, that I'm working on, uh, PhD research, industry research from an individual perspective. My company, Pinnacle, is just pinnacleliability.com. We're easy to find, easy to Google. There you can get into some of the industry market analytics that that we do and the the ways that that there's a lot of stuff there that's freely available in terms of the we we publish an economics of reliability report that covers things. In fact, we just published one today on the water industry 
talking about what's happening in wastewater and water and how reliability figures in there. So that's at PinnacleReliability.com. Uh, and we do, we've got usually monthly webinars that are going on that people can tune into, kind of check out what's happening in the, in the world of data and reliability and all that's either one of those websites, you can find all that information. All right. Perfect. And then my favorite question is what's your favorite resource or go-to resource on this topic? So I know you met, you have your book, you mentioned the failure of risk management. Are those the two that should be on everyone's bookshelf or is there anything else that we're missing? Yeah, I'll add one more, and it's called Super Forecasting. Um, and Fui, I don't. Uh, Tedlock uh, is is the author's name, and and that book is is a little less data focused, but when you but it is very focused on how people make decisions in the context of, of projecting complex things. So Super Forecasting is is great. Uh, the other one I'll add in there is uh, Daniel Kahneman, the famous uh, behavioral econ- economist. Uh, his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. If 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 you are focused, if someone is, is thinking about how how are we evolving with data and decision making, getting away from bias and subjectivity into objectivity in complex systems, all of those books are um, are great references. All right, excellent. Well, I will make sure to put links to everything that you mentioned, the websites, your LinkedIn profile, all these books here, so people can easily find it access those great resources. And I'm really excited personally to look at this economics of reliability report. So I'll definitely be getting that. Great. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today about crucial decisions. Thank you so much. And you have yourself a great day. You too, James. Thanks for having me. I would like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can always find out more on maintenance, reliability, and asset management at www.iridicio.com and by following our blog. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is a proud member of the Reliability.fm network. I'd like to ask you to please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It ensures the podcast stays relevant and is easy to find by like-minded professionals. It is only with your ratings and reviews that the Rooted in Reliability podcast can continue to grow. I thank you for providing this small but critical support. We'll see you next week when we dive into another burning topic with Rooted in Reliability, your plant performance podcast.